Well, good morning. Thank you so much for being here. I'm not hearing myself, but maybe you are. I hope you are. There you go. It's a little better. Thank you for visiting with us today. Some of you are here for the very first time. You can tell me now. Just you. We're glad you're here, and we want you to have a good time with us. Uh, as you can tell, we're getting caught up in the reason for the season, right? It's all about Jesus. That's why we're here today. I want you to do something for me. I want to give you a prayer request. Let me turn me down just a little bit. Uh, yesterday I met a Marine. Imagine that. A Marine. <laughs> His name is Jake Searer. S-E-A-R-E-R. Jake went through boot camp on the West Coast. He's now at Dam Neck on the East Coast. Um, he is, I guess in technical terms, a gunsmith for the Marines. He keeps their weapons functioning, which is very good. But um, was able to share Christ with him yesterday, and he prayed to receive the Lord. <clears throat> to, to God be the glory. You know, that's why we're here, to see people come to know the Lord. Two weeks ago, my message was about the perfect timing of God, and we looked at what Jesus had to say about God's timing that is talked about in the 24th chapter of Matthew, and I want to take us back to verse 15. We're going to kind of jump off this jumping, this, 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 this jumping board uh, this, uh, here, and we're going to jump into God's Word. Verse 15 says, The time will come when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. And he says, readers, pay attention. Now, I, I hope you do not see that. Are you hearing me? I hope you don't see that because if it does, you're going to wind up finding yourself in the middle of the tribulation. And that is a place you do not want to be. The reference that Jesus made comes from Daniel chapter 9. The context is that Daniel is praying while in captivity in Babylon, and he's praying for the people, his people, the, is, the nation of Israel, and he's praying for the city of Jerusalem, the mountain of God. While he's praying, Gabriel, the archangel, comes down from heaven to give him the answer uh, to his prayers that he's been asking God for. So, so God is about to give Daniel, through the angel Gabriel, some understanding about what is going to happen at the close of Israel's captivity there in Babylon. But there's a little bit more. God is also about to give some divine clues about his prophetic timing of future events. So we're always wanting to know what's going to happen in the future. Pay close attention. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. Daniel said, I went on praying and confessing my sin and the sins of my people pleading with the Lord, my God, for Jerusalem, his holy mountain. As I was praying, Gabriel, uh, whom I had seen in the earlier vision, <clears throat> came swiftly to me. Notice that. He came swiftly to me at the time of the evening sacrifice. He explained to me, Daniel, I have come here to give you insight and understanding. The moment that you begin praying, a command was given. Don't miss that. 
The moment you begin praying, a command, an answer with divine purpose was given. And I am here to tell you what it was. For God loves you very much. Now listen so that you can understand the meaning of your vision. Note verse 24. A period of 70 sets of seven, that amounts to 490 years by the way, has been decreed by God for your people and your holy city to put down rebellion, to bring an end to sin, to atone for guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, listen and understand. Seven sets of seven, 49 years, plus, we're doing math again in, in the Bible, you know. you got to be able to add and subtract, okay? Seven sets of seven, 49 years, plus 62 sets of seven, 434 years, will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem un until the anointed one comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. Verse 26, he goes on to say, After this period of 62 sets of seven, the 434 years, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to that and explore that a little bit further in a moment. So, Gabriel is telling Daniel that there is a prophetic clock that ticks through three time periods or three time segments. The first period, the seven sets of seven, the 49 years began uh, when the decree to restore, with the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. This started in 444 B.C. as the Persian king Artaxerxes uh, sent Nehemiah to begin rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. So during this first period of 49 years, Jerusalem was rebuilt. We know that to be fact. Then after this next period, the 62 sets of seven, the 434 years, the anointed one would appear. So from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem in 444 B.C. to the coming of the Messiah, we know to be Jesus, would be 49 years plus 434 years, which equals 483 years. Is my math right? Now I want you to notice that that is seven years short of 490. Imagine that. Seven years short of 490 years. Dr. Evans suggests that a prophetic year has 360 days in it, not 365 days. And he bases that off of the 1,260 days that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 3, or chapter 11, verse 3, as being either 42 months or three and a half years. Look at what John wrote there, beginning in chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring stick, and I was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count the number of worshipers. You know, uh, God pays attention to who comes to worship. You see that? But he says, Do not measure the outer court, for it has been 
turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in sackcloth and will prophesy during those 1,260 days. So as you can see, uh, 42 months and 1,260 days is interchangeable here. So 42 months or 1,260 days works out to be, surprisingly, 30 days per month. If you do the math, if you divide 1,260 by 42, you get 30. So there are 30 days to a prophetic month. Now here's where it gets interesting. Again, Dr. Evans says when the calculations are made, 483 prophetic years from 444 B.C. causes us to arrive at A.D. 33, the exact year that Christ was crucified and resurrected. Our God is precise. He's an on-time God. His timing is perfect. His plans are precise. He knows how to do the math. Now there's one more note that I want you to pay attention to in verse 26 of Daniel chapter 9. He says, after this period of 62 sets of seven, 434 years, the anointed one will be killed. We know that to be a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But clearly there is a break between Daniel's 69th and 70th week. So what does that mean? Well, it means that after the 69th week, the prophetic clock stopped ticking. You ever thought about that? You see that when reading from verse 25 to verse 26 and 27. Again, Dr. Evans says, the events of verse 26 and 27 refer to the seven-year tribulation period that is yet to come. Therefore, a time gap or a gap of time, began at the conclusion of the 69th week and continues on to the very day that we're living in. This interlude between week 69 and 70 is what is called the church age, the age of the church, the time that the church flourished. We call it the age of grace as well because during the age of grace, you can be saved. Now, he goes on to say Daniel did not foresee that. That's not something that God gave him privy to at this point. The coming ruler is the Antichrist who will arise at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week and wreak havoc. We know that to be the tribulation. That, my friend, is when that prophetic clock starts ticking again. That is when the church is raptured. That is when the tribulation begins. Our human dilemma is that no one knows when that's going to begin. Remember, we talked about that. Nobody knows. Thus, I believe this prophetic break to be just like God to do that. It is a divine secret as to when the tribulation will begin that only God the Father knows. God is not going to tell us when the tribulation is going to begin. But he wants us to be ready at all times, right? Ready. Did you get ready this morning when you got up? I, I can tell you, you got here to church. Some of you are a little bit more readier than others. But <laughs> anyway, we're supposed to be ready every day. 
Now I want you to look with me again at verse 26. After this period of 62 sets of seven, 434 years, the anointed one, who we know to be Jesus Christ, will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. Now let me ask you, is that a literal truth? Or did it just appear that Jesus accomplished nothing by dying on the cross? What's the truth? Well, I would say to you it's a matter of perspective. It's all in how you look at things. It's where you're looking from. Are you looking from man's perspective? Or are you looking from God's perspective? What I found as I studied this statement is that most scholars just kind of focus on the dates and the times and the events, you know, all the, 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 the flashy stuff, and they skip over this statement as if it's not even written in the Bible. Not a single one of the books that I have in my library addresses this phrase with any certainty or expectation. The New American Standard Version, which I think is one of the truest translations that's ever been compiled, says that the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Baldwin says the exact meaning is far from clear. Dr. Evans and uh, John MacArthur don't even address it. They are silent. The New Living Translation says the anointed one will be killed appearing to have accomplished nothing. So let me just say that that is what the majority of the world believes. That Jesus died on the cross and accomplished nothing. That is certainly what Satan wants you to believe. He wants you to believe that Jesus was just another man that lived and died. A common criminal who was executed on a cross. An unimportant man who lived and, and died never more to be seen again. A life that amounted to nothing. A wasted life that was lived without purpose. A life that accomplished nothing. Well, let me tell you, friends, that is life from the pits of hell. Why do I say that? I say that because Jesus accomplished perfectly the will of God. Dying was in God's plan for Jesus. And Jesus carried out God's plan for his earthly life. Have you? Have you carried out the plan of God perfectly for your life? You know, there is a plan for your life. And if you're like me, you've spent more time living your life for self than you have for God. It's the truth. Friends, Jesus did everything that God sent him here to do. Everything. Jesus did for you what you cannot do for yourself. He made it possible for you to be right with God. Jesus made it possible for you to be forgiven and saved from the consequences of your sinful life. You can't do that. But Jesus did. Look with me at Romans chapter 8, verse 3. Paul wrote, the law of Moses could not save us. In other words, keeping the law won't get you saved. Because of our sinful nature. But God put into effect a different plan to save us. He sent his own son in a human body like ours except that ours are sinful. God destroyed sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sin. He did this so that the requirement of the law would be fully accomplished for us who no longer follow 
our sinful natures, but instead follow the Spirit. In chapter 10, verse 4, Paul goes on to write, For Christ has accomplished the whole purpose of the law, and all who believe in Him are made right with God. Right with God. Now, friends, Jesus did what the old Jewish sacrificial system could not do. And that is exactly what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Look at chapter 10, the focal passage for our text this morning. Look with me at verse 1, Hebrews chapter 10. He writes, the old system in the law of Moses was only a shadow of the things to come, not the reality of the good things that Christ has done for us. The sacrifices under the old system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. You know, we have no idea how many millions and millions of goats and sheep and pigeons and doves were killed for a temporary pardon. We don't have a clue. But I can assure you that it was a multitude, more than can be counted. He said if they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But, but just the opposite happened. Those yearly sacrifices only reminded them of their sins year after year. In other words, can you imagine putting your arm around a lamb and taking a knife and slitting its throat and doing that thousands of times daily? For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Did you hear that? That is why Christ, when he came into the world, said, you did not want animal sacrifices and grain offerings, but you have given me a body. Imagine that. So that I may obey you. No, you were not pleased with animals burned on the altar or with other offerings of sin. And then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, just as it is written about me in the Scripture. Christ also said, you did not want Animal sacrifices or grain offerings or animals burned on the altar or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they were required by the law of Moses. And then he added, Look, I have come to do your will. Jesus came to do the will of God, and he did it perfectly. He canceled the first covenant in order to establish the second. Notice verse 10. And what God wants is for us, for you and me, to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. These first 18 verses talk about the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. The accomplished work of Jesus Christ. It has been completed. And the writer of Hebrews who wrote this letter, wanted them. He wanted to help his readers stay faithful in following Christ during difficult times. And to do that, he carefully but clearly reminded them 
that the offering Jesus made of himself as the sacrificial lamb of God was a once-for-all-time sacrifice that is far superior to all the sacrifices combined from all the animals that had ever been sacrificed under the old Levitical system. In other words, he's saying if you group all of those old sacrifices, there's one that is far better. He is Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to understand that that was a radical concept that a Jewish person had a very difficult time understanding and accepting because they'd been raised to, to believe all of this was necessary. So for, for the writer to say, oh, there's one that's better, hard to wrap your mind around that. So he goes on to great lengths here to demonstrate the superiority of the priesthood of Christ and his sacrifice and the new covenant that he now mediates. Unlike the repeated sacrifices of the Old Testament system, the sacrifice that Jesus made gave atonement, true atonement, complete atonement for sin. One sacrifice that was never, ever, ever, ever to be repeated again. That's so radical. You know... Not only do the Jewish people have a hard time wrapping their mind around that, so do we. Arden Taylor wrote, Jesus was set apart. He was anointed. He was called. He was commissioned. He was set apart to be like no other. He came into this world set apart to accomplish his Father's will. He was born like no other, taught like no other, prayed like no other, died like no other. He was buried like no other, and he was resurrected like no other. Jesus, knowing that he was set apart, said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God that only had to die one time. One time. He was also the only perfect sacrificial Lamb that was acceptable to God and completely sufficient to save every last soul that has ever lived or will ever live on this planet. Jesus ushered in a new covenant not because animal sacrifices were wrong, but simply because they were insufficient. The sacrifice of, of the Lamb of God is sufficient for our salvation and our sanctification. I mean, it's all we need to be right with God. The sacrifices of the Old Testament lambs only covered sin. That's like your kid spilling red Kool-Aid on the carpet and they pull the rug over it. It's covered up until you find it. Temporary at best and a huge problem, right? But the sacrifice of the New Testament lamb, it cleanses sin. It makes it go away. Totally removes it. Friends, the Jews never accepted that reality. They had a hard time accepting that reality. It was just too radical and difficult for them. So much so that that is why some of them, the unbelieving ones, during the tribulation will go right back to offering sacrifices when they finally get that opportunity. But as the writer of Hebrews goes on to write in verse 11, under the old covenant, the priest stands before the altar day after day offering sacrifices that can never take away sins. But our high priest, 
He offered himself to God as one sacrifice for sin, good for all time. And then he sat down at the place of highest honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled as a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, by that one offering, he perfected forever all those who he is making holy. It says, and the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so. First, he says, this is the new covenant that I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their heart so that they will understand them and I will write them on their minds so that they will obey them. I love that. You know, if you know anything about Israel's high priest, and what his tasks were, and how he had to function, what his job was, you know that he never, ever sat down because his work was never done. He was always standing, always busy, always having to do something that involved a sacrifice. But I want you to please note, please note the contrast here. The Bible says that Jesus finished the job. And then he sat down in his seat of authority to exercise his kingdom rule. He's at the right hand of the Father. Hmm. What is Jesus doing right now? What is he doing? He's waiting for all of his enemies to be humbled into submission under his divine authority. What does the Bible say? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It's going to happen. You can do that voluntarily or you can do that because you have no choice later on. By, then, by the way, that will be too late. He is also watching as you and I are being made holy and ready for eternity. You see, God is shaping us through all the things that we endure in life. He's shaping us to live in eternity. He's shaping us into the image of His Son. Jesus is also working through His Word and the indwelling Holy Spirit to help us understand what he accomplished on our behalf. By his amazing grace, Jesus has accomplished all of God's purposes for you. He has set you apart to be used in his kingdom work. He has defeated Satan and sin so that nothing, nothing will ever be able to come between you and the love of Christ. He has redeemed your soul for all eternity. You know what that means? That means your soul can never be lost to God. He didn't give you salvation on a yo-yo. He gave you eternal life. That's life with God that never ends. <laughs> now, oh, it's just getting started. It's better, okay? I want you to look with me at the most beautiful promise in the entire Word of God. It is the one promise that you desperately need. I, I, I just know you well enough to know that you desperately need this. Why do I know you? Because I know me. <laughs> I need this too. Look at verse 17. And then he adds, this is what the Lord said. 
I will never again remember their sins and their lawless deeds. I will never again remember their sins. Now when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. Christian, do you understand that your sin debt has completely been paid off? If you did, you'd be running up and down the aisle going, yay! <laughs> I know what you thought when your, your car payments, the last, you make that last car payment or you make that last house payment. You know, you go, wow! <laughs> I don't have to make them payments anymore. Done! Listen, friends, you have been completely forgiven. I'm not going to remember you sin anymore, he said. Nothing else has to be done. His work is complete. Mission accomplished. Tom Cruise has nothing on Jesus Christ. That means you're free to walk in the Lord and with the Lord. That means you're encouraged to please Him by the, by, by the way you live and by what you say. It also means you have been blessed to pursue His purpose for your life. The work that Jesus came to do has been accomplished. What did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. His work is done. But friends, mine and yours has just begun. It's just begun. When you look at verse 19 and following in the 10th chapter of Hebrews, you see the continual worship of the redeemed. One of the great things that we get to do on earth, but also in heaven and to a greater extent there, is we get to worship God. Verse 19, there's a very powerful statement that begins here. He says, and so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way to God through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence to worship God. Those are my words with a sincere heart, fully trusting Him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. So, so what, what does the writer here want us to understand? What is he saying to those who read this, to us today as we hear this? What is he saying? Can I make it simple for you? He's saying you can trust Jesus. You can trust Jesus. Have you ever put your trust in Jesus Christ? I asked that young Marine yesterday, Jake. I said, have you ever put your trust in Jesus? He said, I think so. What we found was he, he only had a head knowledge. He'd gone to a service and kind of got moved, but he never made a commitment to Christ. And I said, when you joined the Marines, you made a commitment for four years, didn't you? He said, I sure did. I said, you're going to keep that commitment, right? He said, yes. I said, have you ever made a commitment to Jesus? He said, no. I said, will you? Today? He said, yes. And he went over and he did that. That's huge. That's huge, folks. Listen, if, if you haven't made that kind of commitment to Christ, you can and you should. If you have, no matter how bad things get, and we don't know, I'd say hang in there with Jesus. He's your best bet. Jesus really is all you need. Now, I want you to think with me for a minute about what you receive as a result of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. 
as a result of the sacrifice of Jesus' death on the cross, you have direct access to God. You don't have to pray through me. You don't need a priest. You are one. You go straight to the Father through Jesus Christ. There is no one or anything that can ever come between you and God. Jesus is not only your Savior, but he's your best friend. Jesus also wants you to experience the very best that God has for your life. And in fact, he fights for you every day. But finally, I would say last but not least, because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ, you can rest assured that your salvation is secure for all eternity. Secure. Our banks may fail us. Our government may fail us, but Jesus will never fail you. You say, Brother Randy, how do you know that? Well, look, me at, look with me at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. He writes, without wavering, in other words, without being blown by the wind, let us hold tightly to the hope that we say we have, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. My friends, the next time you feel like letting go, hang in there. If you have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, He always has you. He is for you. He's not going to let go of you. You can trust Him. Now, look with me again as we go back to Hebrews 10 for a minute, verse 24 and 25. I could have spent a whole hour just talking about this one passage but notice what he writes think of ways to encourage one another to outburst of love and good deeds and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do but encourage and warn each other especially now as the day of his coming back is drawing near how many of you believe that I'd get the other nut, but we'd have an accident. <laughs> Listen, I don't want you to miss this. This is important. God calls every one of us to be an encourager. Are you hearing me? You, you, you probably come in here and say, well, there's nothing I can do. You know, all the positions are taken. <laughs> There's nothing that I can do. Oh, yes, there is. You can be an encourager. So when and how do we do this? Well, let's talk about the when. When can you be an encourager? Well, let me just say, you look around, and when you find somebody that needs encouraging, guess what? You have an opportunity. Don't say, I don't have anything to do. You can encourage when you see somebody that needs encouraging. Well, how do I do that? Through acts of love and good works, being kind saying nice things where do i do that well i'd say church is a pretty good place to start that's why he says don't neglect your meeting together come together why because you'll always find somebody at church that needs encouraging right this week it might be your neighbor next week it might be you so we can do that for each other John Medor said the church gathering should be the most encouraging time of the week 
where we gather with others who love us and run the race with us and believe that God has an incredible plan for all of us. Friends, God is faithful to work on our behalf. He is. But we are also called to be faithful to worship Him. He kind of talks about that in verse 26 through verse 36. And he talks about the, the eternal reward of the faithful. Now, I, I want you to notice this first because, you know, it, it's like I could say, well, there's some good news and bad news. And you say, well, give me the bad news first. I like the good news last, right? Well, he kind of does that here. He gives us the bad news first. Look at verse 26. There's a stern warning that he gives us who are believers here. He said, dear friends, if, you, if we deliberately continue sinning, in other words, if we know it's wrong and we can keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. After we have received a full knowledge of the truth, there is no other sacrifice that will cover these sins. Well, what in the world does that mean, preacher? Does it mean I'm going to lose my salvation? No, but it does mean this if you're going to live that kind of life get ready because you're going to reap what you sow grace is not a license for you to go out and sin look at verse 27 there will be nothing to look forward to but the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies anyone who refuses who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That sounds pretty serious there, folks. Think how much more terrible the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant as if it were common and unholy. Such people have insulted and enraged the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to His people. You don't want to mess with the Holy Spirit. If he's the giver of mercy, you don't want to make him mad. You don't want to get on his bad side. Verse 30 said, For we know the one who said, I will take vengeance, I will repay those who deserve it. He also said, The Lord will judge his what? Own people. Friends, as I've studied the Word of God, I've come to understand that the most severe form of God's discipline for spiritual defiance and disobedience is physical death. Physical death. Wow. If you remember, God took Ananias and Sapphira out because they lied to the Holy Spirit. You say, what did they do? Well, they were trying to cheat God out of his finances. They made a promise publicly and didn't even keep it. 1 John 5, 16 says, If you see a Christian brother or sinner sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray. And God will give that person life, but there is a sin that leads to death. And I'm not saying, John writes here, I'm not saying that you should pray for those who commit it. Every wrong is sin, but not all sin leads to death. Again, Dr. Evans says the sacrifice that saves you from the eternal consequences of sin will not necessarily deliver you from the consequences of sin in history. 
In other words, you might reach a point where you have to reap what you sow. I think we would all agree that there are a lot of things that God has just covered us with a lot of salve of grace and mercy and said, go on and live your life. But I know people that that's not been the case. You see, God's patients are drenched in grace and mercy. But even he has a point where he says, enough is enough. Enough is enough. The writer of Hebrews writes in verse 31, It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If your God is a fake God, if it's an idol, then you don't have to worry about him ever taking vengeance on you. You can do whatever you want to do. He's not going to hear you. He's not going to answer you. He's not going to help you. He's certainly not going to discipline you. But if you're a child of God, you serve a living God. And he will hold us accountable for how we live our life. Now, from a stern warning to all of us who are believers, he then moves to a warm encouragement. I told you he was saving the best for last. Here's the good news. Look with, me, look with me at verse 32. He said, don't ever forget those early days when you first learned about Christ. When you first accepted Christ, man, it was sweet, wasn't it? It was so good to be forgiven, to step into the family of God. It was wonderful. He said, remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten. He's talking about these early believers. And sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same thing. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. Not because they did bad things, but because they believed in Jesus. I read about a, a priest that's been sentenced to, what, 28, 29 years in uh, a country down in South America this morning. All because he would not allow himself to be extradited because he took a stance for the Lord. He said, when all you owned was taken away, you accepted it with joy. Why? Because you knew you had better things waiting for you in eternity. Wow. You knew that you had better things awaiting for you in eternity. Dr. Russ Barksdale writes that it is increasingly more difficult in our culture to make present sacrifices for future rewards. Almost everything in our society is about immediate gratification. You understand that companies spend billions and billions and billions of dollars every year with commercials trying to convince you that you need their product now This just might be the main reason why we struggle with weight problems and debt and, and relationship problems and all kind of other issues. One of our greatest sins is that we want what we want when we want it. Someone has rightly said, so much of what really matters comes not from the microwave but from the crock pot. I like that. I wish that had been mine, but it wasn't. 
He says most enduring qualities take time to develop. Wow. You know, as you've just heard, the writer of Hebrews reminds his readers that sacrifices and delayed gratifications, whether it's forced or volunteered, will be rewarded in heaven. That's important. Rewarded in heaven. Listen, all of us can rest in this promise. We can find peace in this promise. We can find hope in this promise. Jesus said more than one time that when you sacrifice in this life, you're going to be rewarded in the next. That's a divine promise. Let's don't let the world shape our thinking. We need the mind of Christ. He gave it all for what was coming. And here's the good news. God is faithful. God's faithful to keep his promise. I love what Jesus said. He said, God blesses you when you are mocked and persecuted and lied about because you are my followers. But be happy about it. Be very glad. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. It's not about the here and now, folks. It's about what's coming. Moses wrote these words, and I close with this passage. He said, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. How glorious is our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright is he. What do you need to trust God with today? If he is a faithful God that can be trusted, what do you need to trust him with? Do you need to trust him with some problems that you got? Are you going to keep trying to fix those problems or are you going to give them to God? Do you need to trust God with your finances? With relationships? More than anything, do you need to trust him with your soul? Our God is faithful. I don't know how to say it any clearer than I said it this morning. But if you'll trust him, he'll be faithful to you. So trust him.